Thanks for tuning in to the Three Strands Podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. Just want to kind of kick this series off by telling you how, it, how I got the idea or how it came around. So about a year ago, I was reading through the Gospels uh, about this same time last year. I try to do that around Easter time every year. Um, no matter what I'm teaching, I just want to be refreshed and remember what Jesus did for me by dying, rising from the dead. And I probably read through those passages 100, 200 times in my life. I don't know. Heard them preached or taught in church you know, probably 100 times or 200 times in my life too. But somehow when I was reading through those passages a year ago, something brand new jumped out of the pages at me. And I saw I needed to share that with our church. And so uh, God was able to kind of like develop that into a series for me over um, the past year. And so I brought that to you today. We're going to start it today. It'll be six weeks long. But it's about questions you're going to have to answer in life or decisions you're going to have to make. Things like, do I take this new job or not? Do I stay where I'm at or quit? Do I, um, do I date that person or don't date that person? Do I buy that house or decide to go to that school? How do I make those kind of big life decisions? Am I, is that person the one? The one. Or is the one I'm with one I should get rid of? You know, those are big questions you have to come to in your life, and all of us face those. Those are crossroads moments where you come to a fork in the road or a T in the road, and you have to make a distinct choice going one way or the other. And, and really, no matter which direction you go, it's going to change the course of your life. In fact, even inaction in those moments really defines your life and sets it off on a brand new direction. You can say, well, I'm not going to take that new job. I'm going to stick with the one I got. But even that choice takes you in a whole new direction of life. Or I'm not going to break up with this person. I'm going to stay in this relationship. But really that decision not to make a decision also sends you down a whole new path in life. These are crossroads moments where you have to make a big life decision. That's really what this series is about. And that's really what life is about, isn't it? I mean, isn't really life just like one decision after another? You wake up each day and you have to make a choice followed by another choice and still another choice and that's really how your day goes. That's what life really is made up of. And so I'm looking through the gospel message or the, the story of Jesus dying on the cross and the accounts of his death and resurrection. And what was jumping off the page to me was that there was all these characters in the story who came to these kind of moments where they had to make a big life decision because of what Jesus was going through. They had to decide, was I going to be with him or against him? Was I going to stand for him or run away and hide? Was I going to let this define the rest of my life? Or was I going to move forward and do something brand new? And so what I'd like to do with you over the next six weeks is pull out those characters as we read through the, the account, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, as we kind of take us through Easter and look at this story over and over again. I want to give you six different perspectives from this story, six different characters from this story, and show you how each of them had to come to a big, huge crossroads moment. Because they're a different story than the story we face, but they're the exact same crossroads moments that we face. And you don't just face them one time. They're moments that come up over and over again throughout your life. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of pick out one each week. So the one I want to talk to you about first this week I called the moment of regret. 
The moment of regret. So let's just do a show of hands. It doesn't make you Pentecostal if you raise your hand, Veronica. It's okay. But let's just do a show of hands. Um, how many people have regrets? Anybody got regrets? Yeah, if you don't have regrets, if you don't have your hand up right now, there's only two people in the room who don't have regrets. The people that are still maybe too young to realize they have regrets or the people that are like so tired and lazy right now they just can't raise their hand. That's the only people who don't have their hands up, right? And uh, I just need clarification before we go any further. Did you guys hear the same thing I heard from Tammy this morning? I thought I heard Tammy say that if you run out of gas, you can always call your Chad. Is that what she said? <laughs> and then she said it again. I thought she said dad the second time. But the first time I thought she said you could always call your Chad. So the next time I run out of gas, I'm going to call my Chad and see if he'll come give me a tank of gas too. But uh, yeah, we all have regrets, right? If you don't have regrets, you just haven't lived long enough or you're just not aware enough of what's going on in your life. All of us have made choices that we look at down the road and think to ourselves, I wish I had chosen a different path. I wish I had picked a different person. I wish I had chosen a different job. I wish I'd went in a different direction. Regrets. So the one we're going to look at today is the moment of regret. So the problem with regret is it's really hard to see, first, that you're at a decision that could lead you to regret. And then second, it's really hard to see which choice will end up in regret. It's always easy to see it in hindsight. If you asked all of you before you made the decision you regret now, before you made the decision, do you think you'll regret it? Almost everybody would say, no, I think it's the right decision. So to do that, what I want to do today is I want to look at a character from Jesus' story, Jesus' account of when he died, the Roman soldiers. And they're really a group of characters, but I want to, they kind of all get lumped together in this story. So I want to show you all of them. The Roman soldiers who actually carry out the execution. So maybe you're like me and you've heard this story a couple hundred times, or you've read through it on your own dozens of times, but maybe you're here and you haven't ever heard it. This is your first time in church, or maybe you've never heard the actual story of Jesus' crucifixion or what he actually went through when he was executed. So I'd like to just give you a quick, if, you're, if you've heard this all before, just kind of bear with me, and let me just kind of set the scene for you, because we're not going to read the entire story today. So let me just kind of set, set for you where we're at. So Jesus is about to be executed. He's already had his last meal, all right? One of his closest friends has betrayed him to the authorities so that they could capture him to kill him. And he spent basically the last 24 hours being transported from group to group to group, going through sham trials. Um, from Jewish religious elite leaders to, to Herod, who was like the kind of the governor where Jesus was from in Nazareth of Galilee, and then to Pilate, who was kind of like Rome's de facto king over Israel. So you, you've got Jesus, and they keep passing the buck around, sending Jesus. You go see them, and they'll judge you. You go see him, and he'll judge you. Or I don't want you to be my problem. So Jesus has spent basically like the last 24 hours or so being transported around Jerusalem to stand in front of different people and face all these accusations, challenged to defend his, himself, challenged to prove that he hasn't broken the law, accused of many things. The only one that was actually true was that he claimed to be the Son of God, and that was true, so it wasn't even a crime. But, and so they were upset with him. They keep passing him around. And so now here he is at the end of that, and the verdict's been read unjustly, but the verdict has been decreed that he's to be executed. And the verdict doesn't come down from a judge who says, we found you guilty. The verdict actually comes from a judge, in this case, Pilate, who says, you're not guilty, but just to keep the peace, we're going to let you get killed. That'd be nice right? And so they've decided to execute Jesus. 
And that's where we're going to pick the story up. That's where the Roman, uh, Roman centurion and the Roman um, soldiers, the Roman guard that were with Pilate and, and, and in Jerusalem, that's where they come on the scene. So I want to pick that story up and show it to you so you can see everything they did in this story, and then we'll talk about it. So it starts in John chapter 19, verse 1, and this is what it says. Then Pilate ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, Brad like covered this in detail. It was excellent. Uh, but Roman centurions were experts at whipping people. And they had these whips like the one described here that would at the end of them be um, tied with pieces of bone or metal or rock to make the um, lacerations more deadly, more devastating. And so Pilate orders them to take Jesus and whip him with one of these kind of whips. And it was actually said in history that Roman soldiers who performed these floggings or performed these scourges, that they were so gifted, so skilled at beating and whipping a prisoner that they could literally disembowel a man with one lash of the whip. Now in Roman law, there was a, a, a law in Roman society that you couldn't whip a Roman citizen, no matter what their crime was, more than 39 times. 40 minus 1 is what the law said. But Jesus, of course, wasn't a Roman citizen. He was a Jew. And they could whip him as often as they wanted to whip him. There was no law against that. And so it's safe to say, you'll see from the context of this story, they didn't really like Jesus or respect him. And I would say they probably whipped him at least the 39 times. Maybe more. But by the end of this beating, Jesus' back probably looked like strips of bacon. If you can imagine what it would look like to be whipped that many times with whips that have sharp items and objects on the ends of it by professionals who are so skilled at doing this, they could literally disembowel you in one whip if they wanted to. So he's bloodied and his back is just shredded. And then you pick the story back up in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, and some of these soldiers then get an idea. It says, Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. Come on, guys, you got to see this. You want to be part of this. They stripped him and put a purple robe on him. Purple robe. Why? Because they're about to mock him for claiming to be the king of the Jews. So at that time, purple was the color of royalty. So here's Jesus with his back all ripped up and flesh hanging from him, bleeding, and they take his clothes off of him, and on his bloody back, they put a purple robe to say, as if to say, like, well, here you go, king, here's your robe. A mockery of him. And then they wove thorn branches into a crown, because every king needs a crown, right? And they put it down on his head. These thorns could have been anywhere up to an inch long, and they're jamming them down on Jesus' head, probably puncturing his skin all around his head, blood starting to drip down his face and shoulders. They took a stick and they placed it in his hands as a fake scepter. Now you look like a king. A purple robe and a crown fit for a king of the Jews with a scepter in his hand. And then they would kneel before him, it says, and then mockery and taunting, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Can you see this picture in your head? All the soldiers are called in. They're surrounding Jesus and he's bleeding from his back, bleeding from his head in this fake king costume. And they start to kneel down and say, oh, hail king of the Jews. Verse 30 says, and they spit on him and they grabbed the stick out of his hands and started to strike him on the head with it. 
started to beat him with the scepter they had given him. When they were finally tired of mocking him, it says they took off the robe and put his own clothes back on him again. Now who knows what that would feel like, but if you can imagine all of your flesh being ripped apart by shards of metal and stone, and then having a robe put on your bloody back and left on you for a while and then ripped off again, that even of itself wouldn't feel pleasant, I would imagine. And then they led him away to be crucified. That's the scene. Can you see it? Can you see how brutal it is? Because I don't think as Americans we can always recognize how brutal this scene of crucifixion actually is. Brutal. Devoid of almost like human suffering or, or empathy. And they're just beating on him and wailing on him. Other accounts of the story in Mark, Luke, and John's gospel, you pick up other pieces of the story like in John 19.3 where John adds that they were slapping him in the face while this was going on. And Luke adds to the story that they actually blindfolded him during this time. And every time they would hit him, they would call out, hey, you're supposed to be a prophet. Tell us who's hitting you this time. Bam. Isaiah adds to the prophecy and tells us what happened to Jesus when he says that they literally pulled his beard out of his face. Can you imagine what that would be like? It, it, if you have a beard and you've ever held like a little kid that just tugs on your beard a little bit, like that hurts. Imagine having like grown soldiers ripping the hair out of your face. Isaiah adds to that that his image or his, the visual look of the Messiah during this moment was so grotesque, so deformed, that you couldn't even recognize him as a human being by the time they were done. Imagine how much his face would have swollen from having the hair ripped out of it. How much his head would have swollen from having thorns jammed down into his skull. How much his back would have just not even looked like a human back anymore. This is the scene. Do you see how brutal it is? And I wonder at any time in the story, do you think that any of them felt regret? But the story doesn't end there. There's more to it, of course. They haven't even crucified him yet. And so they lead him out to actually crucify him or hang him up on a cross to die. We'll pick that part of the story up in John or in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 35. It says, After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Now, see this scene. They've nailed Jesus to the cross. What they mean by that is they've taken his wrists, really, not his hands. They wouldn't nail you through your hand because they'd be afraid the cartilage or small bones in your hands would rip and the nails would just go up through. So they'd nail you between the two huge bones running down your arm. And so they would take these railroad ties, a little smaller than railroad ties, basically, and they would spike through your hand into the wooden beam that they were going to hang you by. And they would put one through each hand and they'd put one down through both your feet and you'd just be hanging on this cross. And they'd hoist you up and put you down into this hole in the ground to hang on this cross in front of everybody. And the real way you would die, two weeks ago Brad kind of covered this, from crucifixion wasn't the whippings or the beatings or, or, or the nails being driven through your hands or feet. The way you would ultimately die in a crucifixion is you would suffocate. Because you'd be hanging on this cross and you wouldn't be able to get air into your lungs. And so you'd have to, with all of your might, kind of raise yourself up to take a breath and then you'd hang back down. And as your arms are like hanging there, you just couldn't breathe. 
And so you do all of your strength. You just kind of have to lift yourself up, take a breath, and then lower yourself back down. And eventually you'd get so tired, so worn out, that you couldn't lift yourself up anymore, and you'd just hang there and suffocate. And that's ultimately the most torture of the crucifixion, is that for maybe days you'd hang there using every ounce of energy you have just to take a breath. That's the scene Jesus is in right now. Can you see this scene? And while that's going on, the soldiers are so indifferent that they're actually at the feet of Jesus hanging on this cross and they're throwing dice, gambling over who's going to get to take his stuff when he dies. Who's going to get his shoes? Who's going to get to take whatever he had on him when we arrested him? Who's, who's going to take that? That's what they're doing in this moment. And so they're laying, they're laying dice down on the ground and they're rolling them to see who would take his stuff. And then verse 36, it says, then they sat around and they kept guard as he hung there. Verse 37 says, a sign was hung or fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And Mark's account adds to that, that the soldiers actually took some sour wine mixed with perfume, put it on a sponge and reached it up to his mouth to try and offer him a drink. Now, this wouldn't make sense to us today, but really what they're doing is a lot of times when people were crucified, they would give them wine to drink to kind of numb the pain. So as almost like a show of mercy, they would want them to like be a little intoxicated so the pain wouldn't be so great for them. But in Jesus's case, the soldiers had such little respect for him and were so intent on mocking him as this quote-unquote king of the Jews that they grabbed sour wine and mixed perfume in with it so that if he would take a drink, it would just be disgusting to him. And it comes to his lips and he can get kind of a taste of it, but then he refuses to drink it, of course, because it was disgusting. And this actually fulfilled an Old Testament prediction about him that he wouldn't take any wine in that moment. But this is the kind of like cruelty that they're demonstrating. They don't care if he suffers. Luke adds to the story that they were calling down from the ground as he hung on the cross. Hey, you're supposed to be the king of the Jews. They say that you saved other people. Why don't you save yourself now, king? And so I ask you guys again, do you think there was a moment in this story anywhere that they felt regret? It's time for the story to wind down a little bit. And so you get to the end of this and Jesus is about to die. But not like the typical crucifixion death and not from suffocation. No, it turns out this was the night before the Passover. This was a holy day in Jewish culture and the Sabbath was about to start. Sabbath, Passover, even more fitting that Jesus would sacrifice himself on the Passover day. Referencing back to like Brad mentioned a couple weeks ago, the Passover in Exodus. Where he would now be the actual sacrificial lamb to save all the world. And so he's about to die because they're going to want this crucifixion to end before the Sabbath starts. And so that was kind of their custom. They didn't execute people on these holy days. And so they wanted it to end. And so the religious leaders, they go to Pilate and they say, hey, we want this to end before the Sabbath starts. Can you have their legs broken? And this was kind of a customary Roman uh, practice when they wanted a crucifixion to end. They would break the prisoner's legs with a sledgehammer, basically, while they were on the cross, so that they no longer would have the ability to raise themselves up and take a breath. And they would literally then suffocate which is within just minutes. 
Pilate agrees, and that's where we'll pick the story back up in John chapter 19, starting in verse 32. It says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. These things happened in fulfillment of Scripture that says not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one that they pierced. So these were predicted hundreds of years before Jesus even died that he would have no bones broken and yet somehow he would be pierced. And here this soldier comes up to him. He's already dead, so they don't break his legs. But they do break the legs of the two being executed beside him. And then the one soldier takes his spear and jams it up through Jesus' side probably puncturing his heart. So there's this kind of bag of fluid near your heart, and so he probably punctured that along with his heart, and so you get this water and blood kind of spilling out of his side as if he hadn't been through enough. And then John lets us know that this actually fulfilled some predictions about Jesus from the Old Testament, which is one of the most amazing things and one of the most um, diehard proofs that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that all these predictions about him came true. That all these predictions about what the Messiah would be and how his death would happen and where he would be from and what he would do, they all came true. There's at least 300 predictions about Jesus just in the Old Testament of the Bible. And some scholars have said that there's somewhere around 450 predictions of what the Messiah's life would look like, be like, and how it would play out. And all of them came through in Jesus. All of them came true. And the odds of that are astronomical. You can't even describe to somebody what the odds are that all of these things would come true about Jesus. Let's try it with you. How hard would it be for you to predict right now who would be the president of the United States in a hundred years? Or what town he would be born in? Or how that person would die? Or that one of their friends would betray them to get arrested? Or what year they would come in and be born? How could you do that? Yet all these things were predicted about the Messiah and came true in Jesus. I've shared this with our church before, but a mathematician, a professor at a university, decided to do a little probability and statistics analysis of the possibility that all the predictions about any one person, the Messiah, could come true in somebody's life. And you could go through the whole study if you wanted to see how they did it. If you want more information, I did print up a little article for you. It's just two pages on the back table if you want to, if you're into like probability and statistics, it might be interesting to you. But he had all of his students, it was about 600 students he had at that time, do this analytical study of all the predictions about the Messiah to determine if it was possible for any one man to fulfill all of them, even if he were cheating, even if he were trying to make himself the Messiah. So what he did was he took the 450 or so predictions about the Messiah he whittled those down to the 300 or so he could find in the Old Testament. And then from there, he whittled those down to, to only the ones that would kind of be provable. There were some that were so miraculous that, that the skeptic might not take your word for it. And so he, you know, things like the virgin birth. And he's like, well, you can't really prove to me that Mary was a virgin. So he, he discounted all of those to start. And he just picked out the major ones that could be proved with statistics. And then he whittled that number down. He said to all of his students, I want you to just start with these eight predictions about one person. 
Could they be true? They were just basic predictions, where he would be born, when he would be born, how he would die, um, what his death would look like, and things about his death that would take place. And all, all. He picks out eight of them. And they calculate the odds of any one person fulfilling one of them. And then the next one, and then the next one. And then they put all the odds together, and they concluded that if any one person were to fulfill just eight of the predictions about the Messiah from the Old Testament, that the odds would be, I'll show you on the screen, 1 in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, that's 1 in 10 to the 17th chances, right? So here's what that number looks like. You'd have one chance, and I believe that number, somebody, if there's a math teacher, they can correct me here, but I think that number is 1 in 100 zillion chances. I think, I think zillions come after trillions, is that right? So you got like hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions, zillions. I think that's zillions. So 1 in 100 zillion chances of just eight of the predictions about the Messiah coming true in any one person's lifetime from the time those predictions were made until the present day. And all of them came true in Jesus. All 300, all 450 of them. Let me see if I can explain for you what this would look like. This would look like if you took silver dollars, right? Silver dollars. You guys see a silver dollar? I don't have one, but I'm not allowed to have dollars or too much. I'm, quarters is my limit. <laughs> so, silver dollars. And you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars. Then you went back and you covered the state of Texas again with more silver dollars. And you kept covering the state of Texas with silver dollars until the covering of Texas was two feet deep with silver dollars. Then you went and you picked up one silver dollar and you painted it red, put it back down, and then mixed up the whole state, okay? Then you blindfolded one person, put them right in the middle of Texas and said, you can walk as far as you want to walk, but at some point reach down and pick one up. The odds of that person picking up the red coin are one in 100 zillion. I can't even go further because they took the study further. If you want to read about some of it, you can. But they were like, well, what if somebody completed 40 of the predictions about their life? And the number, I can't even put the number on the screen, but it was like 1 in 10 to the 457th power. He gave an example of it. It was like, I, couldn't, I can't even explain the example to it. It was like if you took the smallest um, you know, cell or chromosome out of a person and you made a line with that from here to the sun and back a thousand times and then said to somebody, like, try to pick the point. Like, it's just, it's impossible. It's an impossibility. The conclusion of the study that was, like, validated and verified by even non-Christian scientists was that the odds of somebody fulfilling 300 predictions about their life was impossible. The odds of somebody even fulfilling eight of them, it's basically impossible. And yet all of them came true in Jesus' life. And I love this thought just for a second because the skeptic out there would say, well, Jesus wanted to be the Messiah. So what if he just faked it? He made all these things happen. Well, that could be true, I guess, maybe for one or two of these things, maybe for 10, 20 of these things, maybe. But how do you make predictions about your life come true that you have no control over? 
or that happened without you even being born? How would you, if you wanted to be the Messiah, how would you make a decision before you were even born that your parents were going to give birth to you in a city that was specified? Or that that city would be a city that was different than the city they lived in? How would you do that? How would you, if you were trying to fake it and become the Messiah, how would you fulfill a prophecy that said there would be two people executed beside you? How would you decide that one of your friends would betray you to the authorities? How would you make these kind of decisions? How would you decide that you were going to be executed? How would you predict that somebody was going to be executed in 700 years by a form of execution that didn't even exist yet. But that's what happened in Micah. The prophet predicts that Jesus would be executed by being hung on a cross. And crucifixion didn't even come around until the Roman Empire. How would you predict that as you hung on a cross with no control over your life, that one of those soldiers would run you through with a spear? So maybe Jesus could have faked a few of these. But how would he fake all the ones he had no control over? The conclusion of the study and the research, even by the skeptic students in the class, was that anybody who denies that Jesus was literally the Messiah is just denying facts, not faith. That there are literally more facts that Jesus was the Son of God than that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. But nobody questions that. There were more facts that Jesus died and rose from the dead than there are that George Washington lived. But nobody questions that. See, if you deny that Jesus was the Messiah, the one chosen by God to save humanity, then you're just denying the evidence because it's overwhelming. It's a virtual impossibility that any one person could do all these things. And so I ask you again, when you think about these soldiers, do you think there was a moment where any of them regretted it? I don't know about most of them, but there was one soldier that the Bible records for us seemed to have regretted it. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, you meet one Roman soldier who's there. And this is what it says about him. When the Roman officer who stood facing him, him being Jesus, saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. Luke's account of the story goes on to say that this man began to worship him, worship Jesus as the Son of God. I would say he probably regretted it, had a directional change of life in that moment. So let me ask you, how do you know? How do you know if you're at this decision or at this crossroads in life where whatever choice you make is going to send you either down a road that leads to regret or a road that leads to like blessing, fulfillment, happiness, success. How do you know? Here's how you know. Let me tell you first, and let's look at it together. You ready? Here's how you know. When you come to a decision, no matter what the decision is, this is the question you've got to ask yourself. Will I go God's way, or will I go any other way? This is how you know. Okay, now stay with me for a second, because that can be confusing still, but, but this is how you actually know. If I go God's direction, it will lead to blessing and success. If I go any other way, it will lead at some point to regret. It may not be that day. You might find yourself gambling over his clothes. 
You might find yourself taking the orders you were given from Pilate to the extreme and going above and beyond, enjoying your duty to abuse the Lord. But at some point, you will regret it. At some point, you will regret it. That's, that's how you know when you're at one of these moments, okay? And then I found this word in the story of Jesus' death that kept coming up. I never noticed it before. But as I was reading through this past year, I, I noticed it this time. I want to share it with you. I'm going to show it to you. I already read it to you once. It actually comes up five times, I think, in the story. But I'm going to show it to you once. So the very first verse I read to you today is in John chapter 19, verse 1. Here's what it said. Pilate ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. And I looked through the whole story, and I thought, it keeps coming up, where all these Roman soldiers, they kept doing things to Jesus, kept acting, and their attitude was made obvious. They kept saying things. And, but every time it was preceded with, they were ordered to do something. Pilate ordered them to whip Jesus. Then Pilate orders them to take Jesus to Herod for another trial. And then Pilate orders them to crucify Jesus. And then Pilate orders them to go break all the legs of the prisoners. And every time they're ordered, they take an action. Now, anybody that's in the military, preach, Chase. Anybody that's in the military understands that when you're given an order, you act. So you come to these crossroads moments of regret in life when you're just like these soldiers and you're just following orders. And I wonder if any of them felt regret even that night, but just said to themselves, I was just following orders. You know, the non-Christian world doesn't even accept that. We, we hold people accountable for war crimes, even if they say, I was just following orders. Because in the heart of humanity, we recognize that there are some things that are so heinous, so offensive, so inhumane, that you, it's, your, it's your duty as a human to rise up and say, I know what I've been ordered to do, but I will not do that. Now, unless you're in the military, you probably don't walk around saying, well, I, had, I was ordered to do that, or I was ordered to do this. Or, but this is how it comes out for us. This is how you know. You ready? If you find yourself saying some variation of this phrase, here, I'll give it to you. It's on the screen. You ready? I have no choice. This is how we say it. You don't understand. I had no choice. You don't understand. I had to do that. If I, if I share my faith at work, I'll be fired. So I had no choice. If I give that money away to the Lord, I'll be broke. I, you don't understand. You, you don't know what it's like to be me in my financial situation. I literally have no choice. You don't understand. If I break up with him, I'll be single and, and lonely. And it's just, I know he doesn't treat me right, but like I have no choice. Say no to that person. I, wanna, I really want to date her. She's gorgeous. You don't understand. I have to go with my gut on this one. You can go God's way or any other way. I was ordered to do it. I have no choice. I just have to go with my heart. It's how I feel. It's any other way. It is the path to regret. And we all follow it sometimes. We all choose to betray Jesus. And to choose over him what my boss is threatening, with, threatening me with. 
what my boyfriend is using to manipulate me, what my girlfriend is doing to me when she just looks at me, what my wallet is saying when I open it up and look inside of it. I know what he says. I know what God told me to do, but I'm so tired right now. I just got to do this. I have to do this. It, it's amazing to me how many times we use this phrase, I have no choice, or some version of that, when we literally have a choice about everything we do and say. I have no choice. I have to. It's just how I feel. It's how I was born. It's just me. I'm just an angry person. We use this phrase all the time without even realizing it. What we're doing when we use it is we're coming to this moment in our life and we're saying, like, God's way? No. I'm going to go this way instead. Any other way. And when you do that, you walk down the road of regret. It's amazing how often we do this. James says it this way. James in James chapter 1 says, the temptation comes from allowing our own desires to call the shots for our life, and that leads us to death. The road of regret. You hear it? Joshua said it this way to all the people of Israel. He said, you can decide for yourself who you want to serve. But as for me, I choose to follow the Lord. The, the road to regret. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. You'll be blessed with great reward when you suffer for choosing to follow me. It's amazing how much choice we're given. And how little choice we seem to think we have. You don't understand. I'm a parent. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm an employee. I'm an athlete. I'm a we got all kinds of reasons why we have to go the other way. God's way? Or any other way? And here's the thing. It wasn't a bunch of Jewish religious elites or Herod or Pilate or even the Roman soldiers that caused Jesus to suffer and die. It wasn't them who inflicted pain on him. It wasn't them who nailed him to the cross. It wasn't them who whipped him and betrayed him. Turns out, it was me and you. How do I know that? Because he told us. Can I read it to you? Who's responsible? Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. Sin is missing the mark. It's choosing to do the opposite of what God says to do. That's sin. And every time I choose that, I'm crushing him. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep who wander off and do their own thing all the time, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. You know what that means? We've left God's path to choose some other way. Yet, God laid all of our sins on him and let him be killed for us. I guess the question we should really be asking today is this. Has there been a moment where you regret it? 
Or are we just so indifferent to it, we don't even realize it? And we're just sitting there gambling for stuff, yelling out comments that offend him, taking actions that hurt him. I wonder if there's ever a moment when we regret it. There will be a moment when we regret it if you don't now. Because there will be a moment when we stand in front of the Lord and have to answer for how we treated his son. And the whole point of today isn't to guilt you into following Jesus, isn't to make you feel depressed or discouraged about how screwed up or messed up you've been. No, I don't want you to regret anything in the past. But what I really want is for you to not regret anything in the future. So that can start today because the path, the the moment of regret, it's coming again. And you're going to be faced with the same choice. Will I go God's way or some other way? And if you go some other way, I promise you there will be regret at some point, either on this earth or in the next life. I don't want you to experience that. I want you to be free. I want you to choose God's path and know what it feels like to be blessed. I don't want you to walk down the path of regret. I want you to walk down the path of reward. Can I pray for you? Dear God, would you give the people in our room right now the courage to have an honest conversation with you and to just simply say, I don't want to walk down the path of regret anymore. If you're here today with your eyes closed, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or look up at me. You can just have a heart-to-heart with God on your own. But is it possible that something in your life needs to change right now? That there's a job that's been your way instead of God's way? That there's a relationship that's been God's way instead of your way? That there's some selfish habit that's been your way instead of God's way? Is it possible that you've been walking down the road to regret and you need to just own it to God? Tell him you're sorry and commit to start walking down his path instead. His way or any other way, no matter how you feel, no matter what anybody says, I'm telling you, you always get to choose. I hope you'll have that honest conversation with them, maybe even while we sing this closing song. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday, 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon.